This is Top Floor, episode 63. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 63. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. This episode was recorded live at the Cayuga Hospitality Consultants Annual Conference. Full disclosure, I am a partner in Cayuga, and so I was able to strong arm my partners and fellow hosts of the event into letting me record the episode live from the conference floor. I hope you enjoy. Rachel Humphrey is a board member, speaker, hospitality industry executive, and counsel. Rachel served as the executive vice president and chief operating officer of AHOA, the nation's largest and most influential hotel owners association, and served as a member of its executive leadership team and interim president and CEO. Rachel joined AHOA in 2015 after more than 20 years as a trial lawyer. Although she pretends to be retired, Rachel is the founder of the Women in Hospitality Leadership Alliance, and along with former Best Western CEO David Kong and hotel real estate and transactions executive Lan Elliott, part of DEI Advisors. DEI Advisors is a nonprofit organization dedicated to empowering personal success by sharing insights and learnings from industry leaders. Today, Rachel and I are going to talk about the fact that while the hospitality industry is diverse, women and other minority groups continue to face a broken rung at the upper levels of management. Rachel, I know that you represented a lot of high-profile people as an attorney in Atlanta, and I also know that you can't really share the details behind all their names and stories. Instead, will you tell us about one of your most unusual or strangest cases? Absolutely. Um, and thank you, Susan, for having me. And it's great to be, I know, here at, a, at an in-person conference, which is such an incredibly important part of our industry. Um, it, it has been a long time since I was in private practice and even longer since I represented a lot of high-profile folks. Um, and they have all moved on now with their lives and put a lot of these things out of the media attention. So I want to really focus instead on maybe the biggest lesson I learned from high-profile representation, which is the tremendous voice that the media has in creating the narrative. And one of the things that I was very surprised by as a young trial attorney was I would sit in a courtroom all day listening to, and just listening, but participating in trial. And I would go home at night and late in the evening and I would turn on the TV. And especially where you have sports celebrities, you've got ESPN and Sports Illustrated and CNN and not just your local media there talking about what happened in the courtroom. And more often than not, it was wrong. And so I really realized early on how important it is to really um, be in charge of your own narrative here in the hospitality industry as well. If you're not in charge of your story, somebody else is. But it also showed me the importance of 
relationship building because I want the media to call me when they have a question. If they were going to talk about me, I want them to be asking me because nine times out of 10, it's not going to be right if I'm not involved in it. So I'd say my my biggest takeaway other than that people move on and, and get to um, have second chances in this country, hopefully, is really the tremendous role of the media in the court system, but also in our industry as well. That's really interesting. I wouldn't have thought of that as playing such a big role in a trial. Your career shift from practicing law to becoming an association executive, both COO and ultimately acting CEO at AHOA, could be seen as a pretty dramatic left turn. Can you talk about what drove that move? Yeah, I consider myself incredibly risk averse. And so the <laughs> greatest payoff um, I ever made in my professional career was probably the riskiest that I have done. But I went to law school and I thought that I would die in a courtroom. I'd be 100 years old and you'd have to drag me out of there because I loved it so much. And for 20 years, I had the pleasure not just of doing um, the tremendous work I was doing as a criminal defense attorney, but also when I relocated to Atlanta, becoming a trial attorney for small to mid-sized businesses all over the country. And I really loved it until one day I didn't. And I don't know, I've said this a lot, whether it was the traffic in Atlanta, I was spending three hours round trip in the car every day. I had children at that point, so I wasn't just <coughs> missing out time with them because of the court demands, but I was missing out a lot of time with them in the car. You know, like any uh, law firms after the financial crisis of 08, 09, we had to change our business model a lot. And so I didn't love the practice area I had anymore. And one night, our nanny called a Friday night, and she said, I want to start a family, and I need health insurance, and so I'm going to go be a teacher. And if you have a, a dual-working household with no family here, then child care is, to, in my opinion, the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. And I cried the entire way home, like any good mom does. And I said to my husband, I have an idea. Um, instead of hiring someone this weekend, what if I took a little bit of time off? It's been a long time since I loved what I was doing and tried to figure it out. And looking back now, this was 2014, it's hard for me to believe that I thought I was too old to get another job. I had only ever done one thing for 20 years. I'd been a trial attorney. I didn't know how marketable the skill was, especially as a female. I had never looked for a job with a job. I'd had one job with one law firm in Virginia, one job with one law firm here in Atlanta. I didn't know how to even go about putting together a resume or anything else. And so I decided that the best thing I could do was to explore. And I just started meeting with people every day, in-house counsel, law firms here, to try to figure out what were people doing at my level of practice with their careers. And I really wanted to do something in the nonprofit space. Unfortunately, most nonprofits can't afford general counsel. And I was meeting with a woman who is the executive director of a um, charitable organization that my daughter was very heavily involved in. And she said, I don't know if you know this, but I also used to be a trial attorney, which I did not know. And she said, there are so many transferable skills between trial practice and association executive. I think you would be great at that. And so I went home and I Googled association executive because nobody goes to college thinking they want to be an association executive. And I learned that in Atlanta, there was a website that was devoted just to 
open positions for nonprofits and for community organizations. And I saw that AHOA was looking for an entry-level franchise relations specialist. And in my 20 years of trial practice, I'd have represented so many AHOA members in their hotel transactions and in their terminations, their litigation. I'd spoken at the AHOA conference and published in the magazine. And so I reached out to them and I said, I'm grossly overqualified for what you're looking for, but I am at a stage in my life where I'm looking to do something completely different now. And for those who know Chip Rogers, who was the president and CEO of AHOA at the time, um, he and the head of the HR department there created an exceptional association role for me. And over time, Chip became my greatest um, male champion of my career and um, urged me to undertake the chief operating officer role and then eventually serve as interim um, president and CEO when he transitioned. And so a, a, a second career that's been remarkable but really came out of nowhere. Um, it had lawyer aspects to it, but for all intents and purposes, just a complete pivot to a new role. It's pretty amazing how the right person mentioned the right thing at exactly the right time and opened this entirely new door. While you were serving as AHOA's CEO, the association also had its first woman chairperson, Jagruti Panwala. So when the history of AHOA is written, what do you think the chapter about the time that the two of you were the leaders will list as your biggest accomplishments? You know, that time looking back on it now was really a special opportunity, but I don't think that either one of us realized in the moment how impactful that was. You know, to have a female chair of the board and a female CEO, not just in the hospitality industry, but really in any industry at the same time is very unusual. But our personalities are so success-driven for the organization and the membership and our teams that we were so focused on doing great work. We weren't really focused on the fact that two women were leading the association. And at that point, there was also, of course, a huge transition with leadership for with Chip um, going over to HLA. So we not only wanted to show stability, we wanted to show that we were thriving at that time. Now that we get an opportunity together to look back on it, AHOA also set records in everything measurable that year. So whether it was membership or revenues or events, attendance, I don't know if anyone was in San Diego for our 30th anniversary that year. Um, and so I hope that when the world looks back and, and we set a stage, I, I hope that Jagruti will not be the only female chair ever of AHOA. Obviously, Laura Lee now is the second um, female's president and CEO of AHOA, but I hope that when the record books look back, they will see that the organization not just survived, but really thrived with dual female leadership. Excellent. In your so-called retirement, because you pretend that you're retired, but you are definitely not retired, you have taken on a sort of advisor and speaker role in the industry, serving on multiple boards. You moderate panels at conferences. You organize the Women's Leadership and Hospitality Alliance. And then you're one of the three principals, interviewers of DEI advisors. Can you explain what DEI advisors is all about? Yeah, absolutely. And I am retired because I tell people all the time, if there's no money going in my bank account, you are um, the busiest retired person I, <laughs> I have ever met. FYI. I am retired. Um, 
Yeah. So David Kong, who's the longest running um, CEO of a global brand at the time of his retirement last year, experienced in his um, growth from dishwasher to eventual CEO that as he entered the hospitality industry, it was very diverse at the entry level. But as he his career progressed, it became less and less diverse. And toward the end, he was the only diverse speaker at a conference or on a panel. And he wasn't being asked because he's a diverse speaker. He was being asked because he's the CEO of a global brand. And so in his retirement, he decided that he wanted to see what type of impact he could have into changing that narrative going forward. Um, he believes very strongly that brands and other companies are starting to do the right thing, putting programs in place, and will eventually get there, but wanted to make sure that individuals were empowering themselves. And so he formed DEI Advisors as a nonprofit out of Arizona to help really empower personal success and grow the future leaders of our industry. Um, David, you mentioned Leanne Elliott, who also retired last year from the real state side of the business and I, yeah, <laughs> um, we get to select and interview leaders from around the industry. And if you go to deiadvisors.org, you'll see that we've got nearly 50 interviews in the couple of months that we have um, since we have launched. And we talk to them about what was your path to leadership. What we want to show is that my path, Susan's path, each of your path has been very, very different. And so you can still rise to um, the leadership level without taking any designated trajectory. Um, also, we talk to them about what have they learned along the way? What types of challenges? How do they build relationships? Um, how do they overcome challenges or take risks? Because I've been very fortunate in my career to not only be um, in the presence of a room like this, but at every conference in the industry, one-on-one -on -one with industry leaders. And I hear these great stories, but not everybody has that access. So we just want to share these incredibly inspirational stories with um, brand CEOs, hotel owners, management company folks, association leaders, real estate leaders, really, again, across all aspects of the industry so that people can listen, they can be inspired, they can see someone who looks like them, maybe has a path that interests them in some way. But to realize that we all struggle with the same thing or we all have to overcome the same challenges because when you look at leadership, you think, oh, they, they've They've got it made, but to hear them share vulnerably these experiences they all still have, maybe fears they have now of public speaking or how they still are not certain how they overcome a lot of head trash or negative self-talk, things like that, that were, it's very relatable. And so just putting those stories out there for everybody else to hear as well. Are there any common themes that seem to come up over and over and over again in the interviews? Yeah, I think there's a lot of them. You know, one of them, the one that has probably surprised me the most, it's a word that I don't use um, either to describe myself or in describing others, but I think a large majority of them have is curiosity. Um, we hear all the time from these leaders that they are curious about people, which is how they build relationships. They're curious about other aspects of the business, which is how they've gotten cross-trained and are then ready to step into new roles because they know so much about the business. They might be curious about their own professional development or leadership skills, so they tend to take advantage of more opportunities to continue to grow. So I think curiosity is probably the biggest relationship building. I mean, you all are in this industry. You know how critically important it is to growing your business, growing your skills, 
one of the things I've realized in the last year is that I thought everybody in the industry had the relationships that I have because I see all the same people at all of the same events. But really, it's an industry where a lot of people know each other, but the leadership seems to have the commonality of really building deep relationships, genuine relationships with people. And then the third is that they all seem to um, seek out new opportunities and tackle new opportunities. So they're not just waiting for the next step, but if they hear of um, maybe somebody needing extra help, even though it might not fall within their purview, they're the first to raise their hand, or if they hear of a conference they might want to go to, they're asking to go. A lot of them have taken um, lateral or even roles that would be seen as a step down to try to continue to build up their own skill set. So a lot of these actively seeking out their next opportunity. That's interesting. Is there anything that you've learned in the process of these in-depth conversations that makes you rethink advice either that you have given or that you've taken from somebody else in the past? Yeah, I wish that I had um, used an executive coach while I was working. I never gave myself the luxury of that type of time. And the more people that I talk to, my husband's used one for probably 20 years, the more people I talk to that really have an honest voice, holding them accountable, talking through things that aren't in the office, aren't at home, um, I, I wish that I had pursued that. And related to that, when I was leading organizations, I always really emphasize professional development for my team. It was part of our annual review, part of our check-ins. But I definitely don't think that I enabled the ability for them to follow through on it as much as looking back on it I would have liked. You know, every time we go to a conference, we're so busy checking our email in the sessions, you're not really present because you're going to miss something at work. Or here's a great seminar, but you could watch it at night on replay mm -hmm. instead of being with your family. So really carving out time to say, we here, yes, we talk in reviews, what do you want to do this year? How do you want to grow and develop? But not sitting down and actually completing an action plan for it, as opposed to just emphasizing the importance or encouraging it. I think at the end of the year, so many companies have these huge professional development budgets that are left over that aren't taken advantage of because we feel guilty or we're overworked and we can't fit it in or we think it sounds good, but we don't allow ourselves that opportunity. And I would have liked to, if I could rewind, I would definitely go back and try to um, be more insistent for that, for the team around me. I'm going to tuck that one away. The idea that I don't need to think I'm going to listen to a replay later, like just do it <laughs> in the moment. That one hour is not that big of a deal. We like to make sure that our listeners and the folks here at the conference come away from every episode of Top Floor with a couple of really specific practical tips that you can try either in your business or your personal life. So what do hospitality industry leaders need to be doing now, what specifically, to ensure that we continue to move women and people of color forward in our business? Solve that problem in a couple of quick <laughs> tips. Yeah, I think one of them is to um, identify and develop future leaders within your organization to really be um, seeking out from, you know, input from your teams who is um, identified as somebody that could really um, help the company and help themselves propel forward, but then providing those opportunities, whether it's public speaking or presenting or access in front of a board or a senior leadership team or finding those professional development moments that I mentioned and really 
providing those opportunities because we have such an incredible talent pool and we get so busy on that hamster wheel day in and day out of, of what we're working on that we don't always take a step back to look and see what type of talent is around us. So I think that that's one thing. Being self-aware, um, leadership, obviously it has to start at the top. So if we're looking to make sure that the future of the industry has diverse representation at all levels, it can't just be a talking point. Um, we need to show that there are human resources and financial resources behind those initiatives, that we're publicly talking about it and making sure of it, looking at our own executive teams, looking at our own boards to make sure that they are um, inclusive of diverse representation. Um, I mean, there's there's a million things I can think of as far <laughs> as what companies could be doing differently now. But I think we're on the right track. I think that there's so much conversation, and that conversation is really being backed up by action um, just, of just keeping the conversation going. Do otherwise maybe well-meaning industry leaders get it wrong when it comes to inclusion? Like, what are some accidental missteps? I think the biggest thing right now is that we're so heavily focused on hiring that we're not as focused on the culture once we bring in a diverse team. And if you bring in a diverse team and they don't feel like they belong or they don't feel like you have an inclusive culture, it's not going to be a good fit. You're not going to have the success you're looking for. And then it becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy of, well, I tried and it wasn't successful. And so I'm just not going to go back that route again. Um, but really making sure that the um, that we are listening and that we are providing a culture that matches that end goal of, of the diversity and inclusion. All of our participants at today's Cayuga Annual Meeting are independent consultants with relatively small shops that are hired by larger companies. Are there any suggestions you would have for how we as independent consultants can contribute to the DEI conversation? Like in my case, I have one employee, so I'm not going to change the world in terms of numbers. What are some things that we can do? Well, I think, um, you know, I, I tell my daughter, I have daughters who are 17 and 21. This is all new for me. I don't sit here as a DEI expert by any means because in my 25 plus years, this wasn't a conversation. I wasn't going to events where this was being talked about. I wasn't getting specific training for this. And so I think as a starting point, it, it's incumbent on each of us to be curious. That, that comment that I made earlier about what the other leaders are saying, for each of us to be learning. The vocabulary is completely different. What the next generation of employees is looking for is completely different. And so the more resources that are out there that we are taking upon ourselves to learn and to become knowledgeable in this specific area. As far as clients go, I think there's a couple things too. Um, really urging clients to be self-aware. Um, you know, having them do, whether it's to bring in um, somebody to do an assessment or to look around and do an internal assessment and say, how are we doing in um, creating a diverse environment? How are we doing in creating an inclusive environment? So that it isn't just headlines, as I mentioned, backing up the idea of headlines with programs and funding and providing all of these resources. Do they have 
diverse teams and boards. I heard the other day from someone that there was a heavy contested um, student coming up that all of these organizations wanted to hire. And she wasn't interested in interviewing with one of them. And when they reached out and asked her why, she said, I went on your website and your board is entirely white and entirely male. And I am not interested in going and working for a company that doesn't show or reflect diversity at that level. And I think we're going to see that more and more. I hear my daughters talking about that a lot. That isn't something I looked at, not because it wasn't important to me. It just, that wasn't part of the narrative when I was looking for work. I mentioned earlier identifying and developing future leaders to the extent you can encourage any of your clients to make sure that they've got that pipeline of leadership in their companies. There are so many resources. Devon mentioned it too. There are so many resources out there right now. Um, how are companies sharing those resources with employees um, and really making sure that the conversation is there. Um, you know, I think we're we're all going to grow and learn on this topic together. So as you guys learn things from your clients, I hope you'll share with me as well. Um, but I think just keeping the conversation going, it, it isn't going to be a one and done. I don't think that somebody can check a box and say, yes, now we are diverse or we have a diverse team. There's going to be a lot more to it than that. So to keep that kind of on the business plan every year, whether it's a formal strategic plan or it's part of an annual assessment of just saying, how are we doing here? How can we continue to do better? And where where did maybe we make a misstep that we need to pivot and do something differently? Okay, we've reached the fortune telling portion of our show. We're going to predict the future, maybe cast a spell or two. We'll come back later, see if we were right. So, what is one prediction, Rachel, that you have about the future of leadership in hospitality? Oh, that one's easy for me. I predict that we will have many more women in leadership and board positions because the conversation is being followed up by action now. And, and there's a change in mindset. I, I didn't mention this earlier, but I think one thing leaders can be doing now as well is really be changing how they think about qualified candidates or what will make someone great for a role. Um, but the, the progress I'm seeing now, I think, has a lot of momentum, and I don't think it's a trend or a fad. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about industry conferences, which I know you spend a lot of time at, what would it be? I'm going to sound like a broken record. I would love for conferences to have women speaking about their subject matter expertise and not about being women. Um, I think, don't get me wrong, I think the women in leadership panels and sessions are critically important for conversation, for networking, for learning from each other. Um, but I also know there are women with tremendous skills out there who are leading teams who carry C-suite titles and have other things that are really subject matter experts in their jobs. And so I would love to see more conferences really changing up the makeup of the panels that they have at conferences. What's next for you in your faux <laughs> retirement? Um, this is my, you asked me if, uh, for fortune telling. Um, I'm going to divide it into professional and personal. On the personal side, um, I am loving every second that I have with my children in this stage of my life um, or at this chapter of my life and with my husband. I want to continue to travel the world. Um, in my retirement, I have become somewhat of a self-care expert, which I did not do for the first um, 50 plus years of it. So I hope to keep taking care of myself. Um, anyone who knows me knows there's probably a lot of beach sounds and sights in it as well. On the professional side, um, I hope to expand the reach of DEI advisors, continue sharing these incredible stories of industry leaders. You mentioned the Women in Hospitality Leadership Alliance that I founded last year. It's 25 organizations that are 
already exist and doing tremendous work for women in the industry, um, just trying to help amplify their messaging and help them continue to achieve um, all of the goals that they've set for themselves. Okay, folks, before we tell Rachel goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Rachel, what is a story you would only tell on the loading dock? Oh my goodness. Um, you know, when you, you, you travel a lot and a lot of funny things happen and then you try to retell them and they don't seem that funny to anyone who wasn't there, but I'm going to tell an impactful one as opposed to a funny one. In, in March of this year, I stepped foot off the plane in Fargo, North Dakota, which crossed off the 50th state from my list. And that was a childhood dream of mine. And I don't know that I've ever been impacted by any trip as much as I was that one. Because as a little girl growing up in New Hampshire with, um, I'd never been in a hotel room until I was a senior in high school. I'd never been on an airplane until I was a senior in high school. Um, We didn't have movie theaters. We didn't have the internet and cell phones and all of these things. So why I thought, and we did not have financial security, and so why I thought that a little girl growing up in New Hampshire could ever go to all 50 states, now looking back on it, seems ridiculous. And in that moment, it was two years in the making. It was um, for the Elton John farewell tour. It was supposed to be two years ago. got postponed with COVID. We decided to wait it out and see if he would tour. Um, In that moment, I realized that no dream is ridiculous, that the power of travel and the power of thinking back and reflecting on the differences and the similarities in every state from food to culture to who I traveled with to how I ended up there, whether it was business or pleasure, I realized that travel has an unbelievable ability to um, create and shape people. And so I got to reflect back on on this little girl growing up who had this big dream of going to all 50 states. And the day that I, I stepped foot off that airplane, like I, th- I told my girls, there's no dream that's ridiculous to think about. And so I, I think about that. It's not, it's not as funny as some of the other ones. Um, but I, I do think about that and um, the ability of what we all do for a living to really impact people's lives. I love that so much. You know, I'm on that same quest. I did not. And I have 12 states left. I'm not saving North Dakota for last. I want to go out with a bang like Alaska or Hawaii are going to be one of my last ones. Well, I'm going to tell you a little secret. I did not know this, but um, North Dakota has what's called the best for last club. And when you get off the airplane in Fargo, there is actually a tourism center there and they give you a t-shirt and a certificate and you become an official member of the Save the Best for Last Club because it apparently is very common that North Dakota is the last state that anybody goes to. So, so there, you, maybe you should save it for Change last in plans. <laughs> North Dakota will be last. Rachel Humphrey, thank you so much for being here. I know that everyone got a lot out of your story, and I loved your poignant travel tips. I think that's wonderful. Thanks so much for riding up to the top floor. Thank you so much for having me, Susan. Thanks so much for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 63. Top Floor is produced by Don Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. 
You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 